territory in the heartland of the Métis Nation, the place where the great waterways meet and the heart of Turtle Island. I'm excited to host the first Nui Blanche Toronto podcast, where we find ourselves in the territory of Toronto under the treaty of a dish with one spoon and is home to some of the most diverse population in Canada. I am your host and artistic director, Julie Nagam, and this is our second season of Belonging to Place. I'm excited to flip the tables for episode three, Behind Nui, which will bring you backstage of how this massive public art exhibition is envisioned with our guest host, Dr. Serena Kashevsky, a friend and colleague and an incredible art historian interviewing me about the space between us. Hi, my name's Serena Kashevsky and I'm a colleague of Dr. Julie Nagams at the University of Winnipeg and I'm guest hosting the podcast Belonging to Place this week. We're recording this in Treaty 1 territory at the University of Winnipeg in the Abidjibawan New Media Lab. In the last two years, through this podcast, Julie's introduced us to a range of artists, curators, and academics, all of whom are thinking about public art for a variety of reasons. You all know Julie as the artistic director of Nuit Blanche, but I know her as a professor, an academic, an artist, a curator, and an activist. I thought it would be interesting to learn more about Julie's academic vision and to get a sneak peek behind the scenes with the artistic director of one of the world's biggest public art festivals. So this episode is a conversation to find out how and why Julie brought all these roles together. So Julie, that was my introduction of you. How do you introduce yourself? <laughs> I, I don't know. The uh, I, I mean, I think there's a few things. I think it's important to kind of locate myself in terms of Treaty 1 and the Homeland Heartland and the Métis Nation from Manitoba and I lived in Toronto for nine years and so have this kind of strong affinity to both uh, spaces. I feel like the opportunity to be the inaugural artistic director for Nuit Blanche is actually kind of an incredible opportunity. And sometimes I kind of pinch myself to think, oh, is it really happening? And then when I sit in copious amounts of meetings, I'm like, why me? <laughs> And so I feel like it's really exciting and kind of amazing opportunity. And if you think too much about it, sometimes I think about that like blow up head emoji, you know, and, and I think like, oh, my God, we're going citywide. We have over 170 projects, over 150 artists. Um, it's the biggest they've ever done. And I just saw the press release from Paris and I think ours is bigger. OK, I'm going to come back to all of these things, especially that Paris-Toronto comparison. You know, all Torontonians want to know how we compare to Paris. But I want to step back a little bit. I know you lived and worked in Toronto before you joined the University of Winnipeg, and I'm imagining you were just an ordinary citizen going to Nuit Blanche. How was that experience for you? The irony is for me is that I moved to Toronto in 2006 when Nuit Blanche started. I literally got there, I think, August 29th or 30th. I went to my meeting at York University, met some of my new colleagues, and the next night was Nuit Blanche or something. Like, it was just, like, so serendipitous that I got to be there for that inaugural or first exhibition. And then when I think about the opportunity to then build the book and get to do the artistic direction, you know, to think back to that moment of time of being this person moving from northern Manitoba to the city of Toronto, which was massive, and then being there for the inaugural year of Nui is kind of serendipitous. I also feel like the opportunities in terms of 
each year getting to go to the event. And I was, I was just like a PhD student who just moved to a big, brand new, massive city. And, you know, like country mouse, city mouse, you know? And so there was a lot of learning and excitement to get to see these kind of large scale projects that I had never witnessed before. So do you think that was all part and parcel of why you said yes when you got this incredible, you know, offer of being the first artistic director? I think that it took me months to actually believe it was actually happening. So I don't even know that at first when I had said yes, like what I had really agreed to. You know, I think that, you know, I sat in the meeting uh, with the acting manager of Arts and Culture. I had already done some work with the director of Arts and Culture Toronto. And, you know, I was kind of thinking in my head, like, what do they really want me to do? You know, what is this? What does this actually entail? And I knew that there were multiple curators at different sites. I knew that there were commissioned projects and I wouldn't have called them independent projects. I would have called them more like smaller scale local focus projects because that's kind of the internal lingo that we use. But I, I knew that there were varying degrees to it. So I wasn't sure what the scope of the position actually was going to be. And in classic Toronto, city of Toronto fashion, the contract is like, you know, months after you accept, you know, verbally accept the job and it's pages and pages of information of what of what I'm required to do. So I feel like I had a good sense once I got the contract of what it would be, but I don't know. And I still actually don't know as we build up to the moment of, of all of it, because I feel like it's going to be one of those things that I'll be super self-reflective after it happens and then just be like, whoa, did that just happen? <laughs> all right. So I wanted to go big picture here, although you are um, leading me into what the job entails. But let's just switch gears for a second, because um, I know you've curated within traditional art galleries. I'm thinking here of the Winnipeg Art Gallery, where you yeah. did Insurgence Resurgence with um, Jamie Isaac in 2017, where you took over kind of a colonial old fashioned museum space, although you really did take it over. You guys had Indigenous art everywhere. But I also know you're very committed to public space and to public art. So can you tell me why you think public art is so important? I think for me, it's funny. I, I really like shy away from, and you already know this, I already shy away from the idea of curatorial. It's not really the strongest part in my, in my practice in terms of uh, CV. And there's so many other curators that have done really incredible work and have a long trajectory of doing that work. So I'm just kind of thinking in my head, trying to be a little bit respectful of that. But I also, I think what makes me the right fit is that I'm a practicing artist. I've shown in Nui multiple times. I was a commissioned artist in 2017, which was curated by Maria Hubfield. And I also have that kind of scope around public art, public space, creative interventions, and sort of imagining what's possible with that kind of pushing the envelope, not seeing, you know, the white cube, being interested in pushing outside of that and then taking over public space that engages us in different ways. And I've always really been interested in terms of how you know, we engage the general public. So, you know, museums and galleries have a set demographic. They have audiences that are very committed to arts in their city and spaces. And they, you know, they go from gallery and museum, you know, when they travel. And, you know, they're a very important part of the kind of ecosystem of museology. 
But for me, I've always been interested in the general public. And I think that that's why I think Nui is so appealing. You know, the night of, they draw 1.2 million people over a 12-hour period. The year that I showed in 2017, it was almost half a million people who walked through your project in the downtown spots. And you can't, like as an artist, you know, you go to, an, you, you have a solo show or you go to an exhibition and, you know, you get a handful of people. Even if you get a couple hundred people, like you're like, wow, that's such a successful exhibition opening and the energy's really great. But the night of, like, you can't, it's even hard to describe to the artists that we have in the exhibition for for Nui this year to imagine what that would be like to filter through 20,000, 80,000 people through your work at one time, you know, and so there's very specific kind of decisions that have to happen because of that. So it's not just a numbers game, though. I mean, you're talking about lots more people see public art, but is there a deeper philosophy here as to what they're seeing or why they're seeing or what they take away from that experience? I think that public art has the strongest public opinion. So, um, you know, there's the most controversy around creative interventions that way, which is very different than what happens in a gallery or museum. I think people are really invested in their localized communities. So they they take pride in what that looks like and they have a really strong investment. I think for me, I think the magic of public art is that it can transform space and spark dialogues that didn't exist prior to. And that's kind of the beautiful part where you have, you know, somebody out walking their dog and another family walking their kids to school and then they see a work and then they have to engage in some sort of conversation. And it and, and it could be a negative conversation or it could be a positive conversation. It's just that it sparks the dialogue for transformation and change. Okay, so this brings me to the theme for Nui this year, which is the space between us. <laughs> and this sounds like you just said dialogue, but this yeah. sounds like a collaborative methodology. And I'm wondering, is that true? Is that phrase about collaboration? And I guess I'll say also that lots of academics are kind of moving away from collaboration right now or cross currents. We're kind of, we're in our own spheres with our own people and we're doing our own thing. Is this something that you, are you going a different way or the space between us sounds like we're bringing people together? I think I would say there's a couple things. I think the difference for me around an artistic direction or vision is like a large scale scope of what that entire takeover could be. So, you know, we have Scarborough, Etobicoke, North York, downtown, Harborfront. I mean, that it almost spans, I think it's something like maybe around 4 million bodies that work and move through that space. And the geographic just alone to get from Scarborough to Etobicoke is so vast. So when I think about it, I don't think about it just in terms of like the curatorial aspect of which project is talking to which, which I, of course, did in their kind of localized cure exhibition sites. But I also think about this big, larger picture that's happening. And so for me, that is the dialogue that's happening between the Pacific Ocean, the Circumpolar, and North America. And one of the really great things that we have with the symposium is we've got a really nice conversation happening across the Americas. So we've got this kind of larger global conversation around space and place, What are the stories that kind of draw us to those places? How do we feel connected or attached? You know, why why do we live in the places that we do? 
Toronto is the most diverse city in Canada. 40% of its population comes from outside of Canada. It also has a long history in terms of Indigenous people being there for millennia and that kind of central trading route or point where people move through that space to go north or south or east or west. Although I just want to point out that Winnipeg is the heart. Um, <laughs> but it is still very central to that conversation. And I think that, you know, those movements, I think, really speak to people. And one of the things that really stood out for me in the media release was the deputy mayor talking about, you know, we're at this really critical moment where people actually want to connect because we've been isolated. You know, we just uh, are coming out of a pandemic, hopefully. And, you know, there's this real kind of desire to connect person to person, you know, community to community, place to place, you know, and that kind of larger global conversation. I think, too, the other big challenge around collaboration is it's hard to do. And it's too bad, I think, if a lot of academics are moving out of that and moving back to that kind of older Eurocentric model of uh, silos, because that's, in fact, what happens when you look at those kind of silo disciplines. It's like, I only know this area of study and I can't cross over. I just returned late last night from an international delegation that was really focused on interdisciplinary collaborations and specifically around creation and public art. And so it was really kind of incredible. It was, you know, in some ways, a kind of like incubator where, you know, you get all these people together and they had a whole bunch of different fun kind of rules. You know, like you had to work with somebody you never worked with before. You had to think about the geographic location where you were. You had to think about the diversity on your team, like all these kind of questions. And then the diversity of their practice. So you got scientists, architects, graphic designers, visual artists, urban planners, whatever it is. And so those to me make the most interesting projects because you don't just have one siloed way of thinking. And I think that even since I was a kid, I just never saw the benefit to doing something only one way or only seeing in a very narrow trajectory. And I feel like the interesting part for me is in collaboration is you, you know, everything that we do is actually in collaboration. So especially as academics, it's like, you know, you could say you're the author of the essay, but I would be, it, you would be hard pressed to say nobody read it, nobody gave you feedback, nobody edited, nobody, you know, you weren't talking about it or presenting it at conferences and also getting feedback and being in dialogue with people. So that is still a collaboration, even though in the end, you wrote the work, you still are thinking through sharing those ideas and concepts. So I, I know that um, Nui's expanded, as you said earlier, to all around the city yeah. and even the greater Toronto area. So how are people going to enjoy it? Are they going to be downtown and then hop on the subway and then go up to North York? Or like, how are we going to experience it? It's a good question. I think that, you know, the kind of larger decision from the city's perspective is they want to move outside of the downtown core because they don't want to be so centric. And that's been a lot of feedback from the general city population. So I think it's important. And the other thing to kind of note is in you know 2018, when they did the first exhibition in Scarborough, you know, they made a point of hiring local curators to curate those exhibitions and engage those people locally. And there's two really, really great essays in the book by two of those curators for 2018 and 2019. I would also say that, you know, for me, I imagine them as kind of locuses of activities. 
So these little locuses, you could go take your dog for a walk or go do something fun with your kids, go walk around and see, you know, the exhibition in North York, because maybe you live in North York. And then that's all you see for the night of doing watch, you know, and you feel excited. North York was activated. You know, we've done a really nice job in sort of like thinking about the audience experience. So we've got some food trucks and lots of events that are happening and we've got engagement for people. So even if you just got up, walked out of your house and walked to your localized area or took the subway to the area that was closest to you, I think that would, my intention with that is that you would still have this really incredible experience of awe and wonder that Nui brings. If you, in fact, feel like you don't want to leave the house, we have 30-plus augmented reality works that is new in your neighborhood, which also can engage people in different ways if they're a little bit apprehensive of the crowds um, or being around people in the kind of post-COVID climate. And then, you know, and then there's, you know, the city jokes about the diehards. And then the diehards will go and make sure that they experience as much of the exhibitions as they can. So I think for me, I think what would be ideal is that you get a kind of combination. You definitely go see your localized spot because it would be exciting to see your community brought to life that way. And then, you know, it would be great to then have a comparison of like, oh, what does it look like comparatively to downtown? And I think for me, I made a really strategic decision based on um, some of my PhD research around the kind of uh, routes and uh, waterways and movements through the migration movements through the city. And so we're shutting down Young Street from Young and Dundas Square all the way down to Queens Key. And then there's activations all along the harbor front and engaging that kind of line there. And then in Scarborough, you know, the heart of Scarborough is the Scarborough Town Center. That's where the last two exhibitions have been. They've seen, you know, something like 300 or 350,000 people coming out for the night of in that specific area. And North York, we we working in sort of the North York Civic Center and Mel Lastman Square. And that's also um, a city space and a really active space. So we have the exhibition there. And then we're working with Humber College right in Etobicoke. Same thing, beautiful campus. And they also have a gallery. They have access to young and new audiences being on a university or college campus. So that was a really incredible opportunity. And so that's how we mapped out those specific key sites. And then I think it's important to note that, you know, we have all these major institutions. So the major institutions contribute to those sites also. So they have like, you know, in, in classic Newey fashion, you know, Queen West is a popular, Queen West is a popular spot because you know, it's the kind of arts and cultural corridor in the city. And so it always gets activated that way. And I think going up to North York, we have uh, sites along the way as well. So I think that it's really going to depend on how the audience wants to be engaged as much as they want to be or as little as they want to be. So you also mentioned that there was going to be a a symposium that was more global or um, wider. So is that a balance? Could we do Nui one night with these walks in our local neighborhoods, but also maybe go to the symposium to get the wider point of view? For sure. I think that uh, we're going to be, the symposium is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to, we've got three days, over 60 speakers, a huge global reach. So we've got Central and South America, New Zealand, Australia, Greenland. I'm like, sometimes my brain is just like, wow, it's so many places. And so those conversations will be really great. We've partnered with Luna and Rutus Festival, who's got a really amazing capacity and been running a festival that's focused on Central and South American Latin performances. And that's going to be really great. 
We've got the pre-Nui Cabaret, and I just looked at the list of performers, which also is going to be really amazing, at the Gladstone, and the Gladstone's also a major institutional partner for us. The symposium's going to be at Daniel's Launchpad, which is also a big partner for us, and they've got an incubator, I think, of 12 artists that are actually going to create work the week that we're there at the symposium to then be shown at Nui Blanche. And we're going to do the book launch there, which me and Janine Marsha so just finished. And so I think there'll be lots of activities to sort of engage in. We've also got some really great talks and tours that will also be activated throughout the week. We've got extended projects until the Thanksgiving weekend. So actually, it's it's like a week of activities, really. I mean, there is the new night, but yeah. there's things that we can do to build up Almost to. two weeks. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, you mentioned people coming out of the pandemic, and I did want to hear a little bit, this is part of my behind-the-scenes interest, like you were deep in the planning stages of Nui in March 2020, and um, then we all know what happened, and then there were these amazing commissioned augmented reality works, and you've mentioned that before, so I love those because I was, you know, at my cabin in Manitoba um, playing with those works on the lake or on the in the backyard, so was that just a... Uh, a pivot or is that more a philosophical pivot? I think that, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about how long it took us to make the decision. And so that was hard in that we didn't, you know, the whole world was waiting, right? And we didn't know is the it's gonna be two weeks, two months, six months. And so everybody's, you know, hanging on optimistically that we're gonna have an in-person event. And then once the realization hit probably about two months before, I think it would have been October 2nd or October 3rd, I can't remember. And so we were like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna do this. And so one of the big projects that we did is we built the Nui Blanche Archive, which was a long-term desire. Uh, we worked with Archive Counter Archive in doing that and a public data visualization. And so it was a big deal. And so from that, those kind of archival images and working with those folks then translated into the six hours of live stream. And then, you know, I really wanted, we had already, I had already planned for some augmented reality to be part of the in-person exhibition. So what happened is we just ended up blowing it up. And I worked with, you know, one incredible person on the production team specifically, who was, you know, so game to like do this game changer and was so supportive of the entire idea of that. And I think for me, you know, we got a lot of pushback on Nui in Your Neighborhood. You know, we had 23 works at that moment. It was like the biggest one that a festival had done to date. And it's so funny, like now everybody's in it to win it. Like, and and it's like, you know, um, sometimes when you're, I guess, ahead of the curve, you're waiting for the rest of it to catch up. And so, of course, this year we want to bring all those augmented pieces back. And then we commissioned another, I think, 10. And myself and longtime colleague and collaborator, Dr. Heather Gugliotti, did uh, an incubator to specifically target emerging circumpolar artists in that area. You know, we did the podcast, which you guys are listening to right now, which was a really important conversation. And then we did the new talks all online. And it was at the start of the pandemic, so people were actually still interested in watching talks online. <laughs> and I feel like I'm forgetting something, but I think I think that's it. So you work as an artist yourself in new media all the time, and I know you curate new media artists. Yeah. Is this just because it's the latest media? Or again, is there a philosophical interest for you in terms of digital media and new media? I think that new media can become a tool. And I know that I've talked lots about that in, as a decolonial tool. And something that 
you know, we can narrate and tell stories differently and provide really incredible visuals that we might not be able to do physically the same way. And I think the other fun part about new media is it's like, you know, it's exciting platform. I watched my kids like shrink the pieces, blow the pieces up, hide the pieces, teach me how to use my own phone and work on the <laughs> see the work. So I feel like there's a new generation of people that are just hungry to engage that way. And I feel that the digital literacy of maybe my generation and older, a real struggle to engage the material. So I think for, you know, we've got a lot of really great projects for 2022 that are using augmented reality in their sculptural or installation-based work. And I'm excited to see how that engages people or not. I'm excited to see where AR goes. And I also think, you know, that kind of immersive feeling, you know, you can't create the same way in other mediums. So you did mention Paris the beginning of the interview, and I want to come back to that. And I know that you've been to Scotland. I know you've been to Paris. I think Lyon as well. Was there anything that you learned from European outdoor public festivals that you brought back? And really the question is, how does Paris's Nuit compare with ours? Because I believe Paris is considered the the city that inaugurated Nuit Blanche. Oh, for sure. And it definitely is. And we do... We did a, we had a really great interview in the book. Also one of the podcasts we interviewed, or I interview one of the past artistic directors and talk a lot about the kind of impact of Nui Blanche. I feel like based on the amount of press release and the list of amount of projects, we've definitely, I think we're bigger. And that's a little bit mind blowing too, because I know whenever I talk about it, I say, oh, the biggest public exhibition in North America, second to Paris kind of globally. And so it'll be really interesting to see once the numbers come in and what it looks like to know, in fact, that's what happened. Right now, it's just speculation. So I, I don't know that I have the, the right answer. I don't know that I would credit Europe for anything specific as in around festivals or arts events, but I would definitely say the kind of injection of funding and care that they see in arts and culture more broadly is incredible. And I think in the North American context, we could really learn from that. You know, for the most part, lots of stuff that they offer is free and open to the public. And you have a much different kind of society and a different kind of relationship to arts and culture. And I think that, you know, we could learn from that. The delegation that I was just on, we had 13 different countries. So Palestine, Egypt, Turkey, Argentina, Brazil, you know, and all of those directors of major festivals and exhibitions have their own way of doing the work. And it's really interesting, or the things that I would say learning on other international delegations is the infrastructure, the countries that don't have the infrastructure and don't have the injection of funding are suffering, you know, and the and because of that, you know, their general population also doesn't get exposure the same way. And so then when you talk about uh, Nui Blanche and the kind of financial investment that happens in an event like that, and then you compare it to, say, a project that one of the delegates was doing in Palestine, it's a big, stark difference. And but their impact is very similar, you know, and the way that they've engaged community, the way that they're thinking about audience, the way that they're wanting to tell stories and engage public, those things are similar. And I would say that, you know, for us here, you know, I think people forget what an amazing opportunity is 
have access to arts and culture, just more broadly. Do you think that they respect art a little bit more in Europe? Hmm. I don't know. I like that's such a tough question. I mean, I don't know if I have enough context to answer it. I feel like I think that they value arts and culture differently than we do. And I would say that because of that, they produce more opportunities for their for the kind of ecosystem for creative work. I'll just say that when you know when I tell people I'm a, an art historian in Canada, they glaze over and the conversation's over. And when I say that in Paris, it's completely different reception. Oh, interesting. They're like, you're an art historian? What a fantastic job. <laughs> okay, so just a little bit winding down then. Um, you've mentioned that it's not con- Dewey's not concentrated in the downtown anymore. You've gone really far and wide. Um, well, the downtown exhibition is still going to be really amazing. <laughs> but I can also stay in North York yeah, with my folks totally. and do that too. Yeah, totally. um, you've mentioned Nui and Your Neighborhood will continue. Um, I guess, are there any emerging artists I should look for? Like, who are you really excited about? I know you have many, many artists. Oh. Is there anyone that I don't want to miss? This is, a, this is a hard game. I feel like even when I saw the press release that the city had put together, I was like, oh, we're just going to name those artists and not the other artists. I think that I see all of their work as an important contribution. And so I think that that game is hard for me. I also didn't do it on purpose. I don't think I did. I have a lot of really amazing mid-career artists that are just ripe for this incredible opportunity and giving that kind of platform and access to this incredible production and programming team that happens out of the city of Toronto. They're like, you know, they're the best. I I have never worked with anybody else that compares even an iota. And I feel like just that in itself will be transformational for each of those artists. I think there'll be a strong focus on some of the Toronto-based artists because, you know, we all like the local heroes. And I also feel there's really incredible exhibitions at each site. And I tried to be very conscious to make sure that there was kind of big, bold commissions that are actually equally paired in terms of their size and scope in each of the locations. I'd say there's definitely a higher concentrated amount of work in the downtown harbor front just because the size is so much bigger than some of the other locations. But I don't think, I, I hope that people aren't disappointed. And I don't know that I can do any direct shout outs. I just like, it makes me too nervous. Well, I think that's okay because we can we can link here to the city's um, lists and sites and program. Um, I also want to know if we can link to some articles that um, people, the listeners might want to find out more about your academic background, if we can do that. Yeah, for sure. I think we can figure out. Just like maybe one or two articles that they yeah. could get access to. Okay. I think it'd be great. Anything else? I mean, you know, what does it take to prepare something like this? Like, I know you've been extremely busy and you did say at the beginning, maybe you, every now and then you think twice about <laughs> what you got yourself into. It's yeah. very different than the academic life. I mean, sometimes yeah. you tell me you've had back-to-back Zoom meetings all day long. <laughs> so um, how's, so you've told us the experience for, it's going to be transformational for people receiving it. Certainly for the artists, this could change some of the artists' lives. I hope it How is it for you? I don't know yet. I just, I I don't know that, um, I think kind of like I'm in that similar state of when I got asked to do the position. Those first like, you know, four or five months, I was still in full disbelief that that was something that I was actually going to be given as an opportunity. And I think I'm kind of in that same mindset again, where I'm just like, I don't even know what the scope is. 
I will say this, though. I feel very confident that I could take on any large-scale project at any level and see it to fruition and be excited about what happens. You know, there's lots of learnings for me. I never worked as a civil servant or in that kind of infrastructure before, although I've had many, many different kinds of jobs. <laughs> I just, um, that environment is very different and it's a new way of learning how those processes ha happen, right? And within the university system, the, those systems aren't the same way. I would say some of my favorite parts are like seeing the artists' faces light up when I say like, just dream. What do you imagine? Like, you know, if, if money's no object and, you know, you could do anything, like what's the thing that you've always wanted to do? Or, you know, think big or think 10 times bigger than what you would normally propose. And I think just like seeing some of their eyeballs pop out or like just like their brain explode and think like, oh, wow, like this is amazing. I could do this. And then, you know, working with the team to try and scale it in and figure out how that works actually going to come to fruition. And I think the other fun part for me is the connections and the community that you build while you're doing the work. As much as I know one of <laughs> some of the staff have a little countdown, you know, to the, to the big day, and I know that I'm going to be real sad when it's over, mostly because, you know, I've become attached to all the people that I work with and all the artists that we've been doing. And especially because it was supposed to be a two-year contract and now it's a three-and-a-half-year contract. And so, you know, I feel like a little part of me is embedded into that existing infrastructure. And I can now see, you know, I've done lots of interviews with different artists and different scholars and critical thinkers who've had a long-term commitment to Nuit Blanche. And I now see how they're kind of attached. So I, I feel a little bit attached and I... I'm a little bit nervous about how people are going to react or, you know, what the feedback's going to be. But I'm also really thrilled to just see what the artists are going to come up with and see them that night and see how the city engages with the kind of spectacle that we've created in this kind of like awe and wondrous kind of way. Well, this is a perfect way to end, Julie. I'm so excited to countdown to the big day. I will be there walking up and down Young Street, looking for you. Um, thank you so much for taking this time. I, I know it was really nice to hear about what you do and how you do it, and also how you think through things. So it sounds like a layered, complex, amazing event. Thank awesome. you. Thanks, Serena. Thanks for having me. Nui seeks to emphasize the ruptures by proposing new models of public art with engagements that simultaneously question, decenter, and expand experiences of the city. We are thrilled to be launching this in-person event, and I am so grateful to all of the city staff, and of course, Serena for guest hosting. Get ready for a citywide takeover on October 1st. So I guess I'll leave it there then. Thanks so much for listening. I would love to say Chimigwich, Marcy, and thank you to all the people that make this podcast possible and tune in again for Nui's Belonging to Place.